Whoa, let me get this straight, Doc. You built a podcast devoted to classic TV shows? Marty, you've got to think historically. TV retrovision. It's the way of the future. You mean the past. Exactly. I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to TV Retrovision, the podcast where we celebrate all our yesterdays, today and tomorrow. If you've ever seen a New Yorker's map of the United States, it consists of New York, New Jersey, desert, and California. That's pretty much it. Strangely, it's a tunnel vision approach that's not far removed from the way people view the late Bob Crane, star of the 1965 to 1971 sitcom Hogan's Heroes. As far as they're concerned, his life has been reduced to that classic TV show, his unsolved 1978 murder, and the scandal that followed it. That assessment of his father is something that his journalist son, Robert Crane, has had to deal with for all these years. He attempted to do so in his 2015 book, which was co-written by Christopher Fryer, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. That tome also focuses on their relationship and Robert's own struggles with growing up in Hollywood. What's so interesting about speaking with him regarding his dad is that there seems to be a duality in feeling that quickly becomes evident, a recognition of the light and the dark within his father. In the first of a two-part conversation, he paints a revealing portrait of Bob Crane that might surprise people who know him primarily as Hogan. The view of your father, I think, from people, uh, things begin with Hogan's heroes and end with, unfortunately, his death and the aftermath of that. I'd like to paint more of a portrait of him to get a sense of who he was beyond that. Yeah, that, and you're, you're really talking about a 13-year period. Uh, it's approximately 65 through 78, um, as in 1965 to 1978. Yeah. Doesn't seem like a lot of time, you know, now. Uh, when you're in it, 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 you know, like he's living it and I'm part of the family and we're living it vicariously through him. It seems like a long time, but, um, yeah, looking back now, not. Um, so I, I, I guess the, the major points before Hogan's Heroes, uh, well, a couple. My dad came from a small town in Connecticut. He was born in Waterbury, and uh, he he and his parents moved to Stamford, Connecticut, and he met my mom, and they uh, actually met while going to high school, it, you know, this is back in the forties. That's what you did. You, you met your person in high school and then you, uh, you know, some lucky people went on to college, uh, a lot, uh, in his town did not, you know, you go get a job and then you get married and you have kids and that's basically what they did. Um, so a, a lot of people don't know that he started off in radio. Really? Um, uh, on, uh, all the way from, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut, WICC, uh, to a couple of stations in, uh, New York state, one in Hornell. Um, and he was also a drummer, a jazz drummer, pretty good, pretty good jazz drummer, uh, heroes like Buddy Rich, you know, Louis Belson, Gene Krupa, uh, loved music. My mom loved music, played music. They were in the band together in high school. And, um, so those are those are a couple of things that probably you know a lot of people would not uh, know about. Um, the big break for my family and my dad's career was when um, uh, KNX, which is the Los Angeles CBS radio uh, outlet, uh, had an opening on their morning show, um, which was a Monday through Saturday thing, four hours every morning. You know, drive time, prime time radio. Right. Uh, and they, they heard my dad's, uh, tape 
from uh, while he was in Connecticut, and uh, they loved what they heard. And he he went out to Los Angeles, had an interview uh, with the uh, general manager at KNX, and uh, they got back to him and said, "You're our guy." So we were the pioneers in our family, um, moving from uh, small town Connecticut to big. Los Angeles, uh, at that point, it was my mom, my dad, and me uh, before my two younger sisters were born. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about Mexican food or, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in L.A. at that time. Uh, And they rented a home in Sherman Oaks, which uh, was a nice area, still is, a suburb of L.A. And uh, he was on the air for nine years, uh, battling it out with a guy named Dick Whittinghill, who was on another station, uh, kind of back and forth, who was number one on, the mor- on morning radio. And uh, during that, uh, my dad started acting. Uh, small theaters work, you know, out here in the Valley, San Fernando Valley. Um, just love being in front of an audience, uh, getting, you know, laughs and things like that. And then on his radio show, he would have guests on in the last hour, uh, just everybody you can think of at that time in the 50s and 60s. And one of the guests was uh, Carl Reiner, who was producing uh, the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, which was like number one sitcom for sure. It might have been the number one show, too. Everybody loved the Dick Van Dyke show. And uh Carl Reiner was watching my dad do the radio show. There was a lot of comedy, improvised comedy that my dad did on the show and like that. And he said, you know, there's a role in the show that we're filming next week that would be perfect for you. And my dad jumped, of course, and he uh, filmed the show. He plays a philandering husband. Okay. And uh, yeah, so it uh, gets a little too close to Mary, uh, Laura Petrie, Mary Tyler Moore. In that episode, Rob Petrie, Dick Van Dyke, does not like that. And they're doing a PTA show, talent show. And uh, and my dad is married, and he gets called out by his wife and pulls out of the show and, you know, whatever. It, it was a great script. Uh, Martin Ragaway, I'll never forget. I read the script. I was, you know, uh, what was I at the time? Uh, 11, 12 years old. Very funny. Uh, my mom and I went to the filming of the show live in front of an audience, and uh, it was great. And it aired, and uh, of course, everybody watched the Dick Van Dyke show. And Donna Reed's husband, Tony Owen, who was producing the Donna Reed show, saw it and said, "Hey, this guy would be—you know—we need a little bit some new blood in the Donna Reed show, and this guy would be great as one of the wacky neighbors, uh, along with Anne McRae." And so they came on and did uh, what, what was called in that day uh, seven out of 13. So for every 13 episodes that were filmed, my dad was in seven of them, of them uh, per his contract. Um, and he did that for a couple of years. And then uh, his agent gave him the script. And he, and he said, this is uh, World War II. And my dad got, no, nah, you know, I want to do comedy <laughs> yeah, and the right, agent said yeah the agent said this is comedy right a pow camp yep and he my dad went in he read with uh, werner klemper who went on to play clink uh colonel clink and they did uh read some scenes together great chemistry uh edward h feldman who was producing the show who's really the brains behind 
uh, Hogan's Heroes, loved what he saw, and he signed both of them. And then uh, from then on, there on, he filled in the cast. Um, you know, Robert Clary, Richard Dawson, Larry Hovis, Ivan Dixon, among others. John Banner, of course, is Schultz. And it just all seemed to click. Um, and towards the end of that, they started filming in June of 1965, and it was going to debut in September of 1965. And during the summer, they got such a great vibe, uh, they meaning the, the crew, the cast, the producers, writers, directors, about this show that my dad gave up his radio wow. show uh, before the debut of Hogan's Heroes. It's either confidence so he, or foolishness, huh? You don't know which at that point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly, Ed. So, you know, he rolled the dice, uh, and I guess he figured in the back of his mind, well, gee, you know, if this show flops, I can always go back, you know, somewhere uh, and get more radio work, you know, um, and go from there. Right. Uh, but, yeah, he, he took the plunge, and uh, they, they ran for six years. And the miraculous thing, I, I I think, is that it's still running. I mean, it's on Me TV and yeah. uh, other stations around the world, and we're, it's now in its uh, well. That would be what fifty five years, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah fifty five years, which is amazing. Fifty five years, amazing. Absolutely. I'm still trying to wrap my head around, uh, and I guess I'm taking you out of the timeline, so to speak, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that your dad had this career, which I don't think people realized as a disc jockey uh, working in radio. And, right. And, and we can go back to Hogan's heroes in a sec. I just, I just am curious about that, what he was like as a disc jockey, because it's hard to imagine it in some ways. Yeah. I, I had the good fortune of uh, watching him do the show a number of times that, you know, if, uh, if there was school, vacation or during the summer a holiday or something you know i would uh run down there with him i mean literally he, he this was the day of no assistants no drivers no pas no you know posse nothing he would get in his car at 5 30 in the morning and you know if i had the day off i'd go with him i, I was uh 12 years old let's say and we jump in the car and we leave the unfashionable Tarzana, which TV Guide called it when they did an article on him, <laughs> and drove about 90 miles an hour, uh, that's my dad driving, to Hollywood, uh, Gower and Sunset, for anybody who knows Hollywood, Gower and Sunset, uh, diagonally across from the old Columbia Pictures studio and we would sail down there park the car run into the cbs radio building elevator up to the studio and boom he jumps in the studio he's got three turntables this is all pre-digital the and this is vinyl vinyl three turntables a partial drum set wow. uh a horse collar with a microphone on it so he can stand, he can swivel in his chair and move around. And then uh, across from him, uh, up a little bit, like a just slightly higher floor behind glass, was his engineer. They call it an engineer at the time, uh, a guy named Jack Chapman. 
who would play the music and commercials. And those were also also on vinyl, and also uh, they were starting uh, cartridge, not cassette, but cartridge. Uh, some of the commercials would be on cartridge. And uh, it was a five-ring circus, live, no script, whatever was going on in the day with news or, you know, the celebrities that would be coming in later at nine o'clock or, or whatever. My dad just formulated these ideas in his brain. Uh, he had uh, comedy records, sound effect records, uh, and he would uh, rig those up on the turntables and cue them up to, you know, a certain sound that he would like, for instance, uh, Hertz, uh, rent a car, Hertz, rent a car, puts you in the driver's seat. And then he cuts out of the commercial and goes to the sound effect of a horrendous car crash. Oh my God. <laughs> and then back to the commercial. And, you know, you'd just be sitting there. He was like an octopus with the arms going, you know, all over the place and queuing up things and, you know, he's got his earphones on. And, and uh, in that case, you would think Hertz Rent-A-Car would be upset yeah. with this car crash. They loved it. Wow. The executives at Hertz Rent-A-Car loved this. They loved that he was teasing their product and, you know, actually giving it more airtime by talking about it or, you know, making fun of it or whatever. They, they loved it. Um, so th that was it. It started at six in the morning and it went until uh, 10 o'clock and it was just nonstop. Uh, again, five ring circus, not even three ring, a five ring. <laughs> it's like, right. Expanded to five. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would be exhausted, you know, as a 12 year old kid watching this. Yeah. Uh, and my dad did not drink coffee. He didn't take drugs. He didn't, you know, take stimulants or anything. This was just, some drive in him to make people laugh and to do wild, nutty things on the radio. That was wow. his goal. But, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned earlier that he went on and did a lot of episodes of the Donna Reed show. Now, that was a yeah. very low-key comedy, shall we say, or sitcom. I can't imagine yeah. what it would be like for a guy who's, like you said, a five-ring circus, a human circus, to have yeah. to put a cap on it, basically, and play this character that is like – so, like, comparatively speaking, so mellow and so low-key. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are correct. <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah, that was it. And, and he, the Donna Reed show was filmed at Columbia. So he would get off the air and literally run over to Columbia Studios across the street and then get made up and, you know, work. They, they would plan around him just for the couple of things in the morning without him. And then he'd come in and film. Um, yeah, so it was a very tame experience compared to what he was doing and, and the kind of humor that he liked, but he realized a couple of things. I mean, first it was working with the great Donna Reed, right. you know, who's a fantastic actress, and there were other uh, great players on the show, Carl Betts and Paul Peterson and Shelley Fabres, and, you know, the show had been on for a number of years. It was a hit show. So people watched it, um, and it was exposure, you know, on a on a big network show. Was it his kind of humor? Not necessarily, but he he saw it as a good stepping stone to try to. He wanted to emulate his heroes, his 
two main acting heroes were Jack Lemmon for both comedy and drama right. and Gig Young uh, for same thing, comedy mm. and drama. Gig Young, um, okay. he loved these two guys. And he did get to work with, well, he got to interview Jack Lemmon on his radio show, which was a great thrill. And he got to work with Gig Young in a series, and you'll know this, Ed, um, I can't remember the name of it. It was on part of a season. Um, Maybe I'll with, know it. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it was on NBC in the 70s, oh, and man. it did not did not do well. John, uh, the co-star was John, um, got his name. He was in Deer Hunter and a bunch of other films. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know what yeah. you're talking about. I cannot think of the name of it, though. Yeah. Sorry for it, those if listening. I think, <laughs> if I think of it, I'll, I'll just blurt it out there out of go. nowhere. There but, you go. but he did like find Tourette's or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. So he finally got to work with gig young and that was a great thrill. Um, yeah. and unfortunately that show was not better, but, uh, yeah. So he looked at, he was on Donna Reed for two seasons and, uh, you know, filming at a big studio, Columbia pictures and, you know, working with Donna Reed and, you know, th that was a thrill. But again, uh, the humor got a little closer to, to his radio show when he did, Hogan's, you know, uh, where they're doing all sorts of dastardly deeds behind en enemy lines, you know, that, that was a bit more in sync with what he liked. Well, and that's a situation I think in TV where you sometimes have it, where it seems like an actor and a character perfectly mesh. Did, did it feel yeah. like that? Did Hogan feel like that to him? From day one, day one. Um, he, my dad was born to play Colonel Robert E. Hogan. He was born to play him. Uh, though he was not in the military himself because he just he kind of escaped World War II. He wasn't old enough at the time. But it, that was the role. I mean, the, the wise guy, the know-it-all in terms of, you know, Hogan's always got a plan right up his alley, right up his alley. And then getting to work with, you know, the some of the people that we mentioned earlier, Werner Klemper, John Banner, and the Hogan's guys, uh, Hogan's heroes, you know, all of these people brought all, you know, sorts of talents from other areas. And it was just uh, very exciting. But he he was born to play that role. I, I, I really think uh, Werner Klemper, who was also, uh, you know, a very, very good actor and, you know, mainly in dramas. I think Werner Klemper was born to play Clink. I mean, right. I, you just can't think of anybody else playing Colonel Clink. Absolutely. But now what kind of impact does the success of a show like Hogan's Hero have on Heroes have on him? Do you know what I mean? Because it's like it's one thing to say, well, I'm a co-star on the Donna Reed show and this is very nice and I'm right. getting some exposure. Suddenly you're in the center of whatever media storm existed, media, yeah. meteor, uh, <laughs> storm yes. that existed at the time. What kind of impact did that have on him? You, you would think, well, it, it, it goes back to one's core and – my dad was brought up, uh, you know, small town Connecticut guy. Uh, his dad worked at a furniture store. His mom was, you know, the stay-at-home wife, like used to happen. Um, and he did have an older brother who who was old enough to be in the military. He was in the Navy. This is just a working class family, a total non-show business family. And, and in fact, I, I think uh, his parents were pretty skeptical, you know, about my dad pursuing, you know, radio and drumming and acting and that kind of thing until, until probably Donna Reed. And then when Hogan's hit, 
big time. They realized he was on to something. Um, so that as the background story, my dad didn't flip out, you know, when Hogan's finished in the top 10, the first season, and, and my dad was nominated for a Emmy award. Some people with uh, without a good foundation, might have you know flipped out and yeah. become ego maniacal or whatever. My dad was very happy that people were watching the show. But here's an example Ed, of my dad. So they're filming. The show is now on the air. It's the first season. They take their lunch break. You know, during filming, they have an hour or whatever it was, 45 minutes. He has to go to the bank. See, he doesn't have an assistant who or a PA right. who's going to run this over for him, like. Nowadays, where everybody has 12, you know, people in their posse, yeah. um, he runs over to Bank of America because he's got a check to deposit. Well, he wants to save time. So he keeps the Hogan's outfit on. <laughs> so the Bank of America so, dressed as Hogan. But, exactly. So you're at the Hollywood branch of Bank of America, and you're in line behind the guy who's playing Colonel Hogan with his uniform on, you know. And he, he wasn't doing this to show off or anything. He didn't even think about it. Right. And he and he knew he, he didn't want to have to change out of his clothing, you know, to get back into Hogan when he came back from the bank. So what's the easiest route? Leave it on. Right. That was my dad. My dad in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, no that's pretense. part of it. It was just him. As no pretense. Yeah. yeah. And if somebody recognized him in line and asked for an autograph, he'd sign an autograph. No right. big deal. You know, and then. Make your deposit, get back in your car, drive back to the studio. That was him. Yeah. But now a lot of actors, when the time a show, now Hogan's ran for six seasons, right? Yes. Yeah. So by the time a show has been on that long, an actor's usually chomping at the bit to say, okay, I got to do something else now. I'm kind of done with this show. What was his yeah. feeling when the show came to an end? Well, it, first of all, the, the ending was abrupt. Uh, it was a a new... I don't know if it was a new total regime or just a new plan for CBS. Was this the Fred Silverman? Uh, they were uh, Fred Silverman thing with the with the uh, rural purge, as they called it. Exactly, exactly. So Hogan's unfortunately was part of the rural purge. You know, the Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, you know, shows like that that have been huge hits for CBS. They got rid of those, and Hogan's was part of it. Uh, Hogan's, t in my mind, could have run, you know, another year or two, maybe. And I, I think everybody on the show expected it to to run another year or two. They were planning on it. And uh, the purge came overnight. I mean, this was back in the day before you knew your show was ending and you got to do your final episode, uh, a la MASH, for instance, which came later. MASH knew, you know, at the end of whatever it was, 11, 12 years, they were finishing and they got to do their big blowout uh, end episode, which, you know, attracted huge numbers. Hogan's did not get to do that. They didn't get to have the camp liberated, you know, or the end of the war or something like that. They were just canceled. So they never got to do that last episode. So keep the, keeping that in mind, I think my dad probably at that time was just looking for another series to go into. Um, and that didn't happen for about four years after Hogan's ended. And in the meantime, what he did, what he did a couple of movies for Disney, um, Super Dad, which was really bad, uh, Kurt Russell, Barbara Rush, and the Disney stock company, Joe Flynn, you know, people like that. Uh, oh, Dick Van Patten and uh, 
you know, their, their repertory company. And then he did a little cameo in a film called Gus about a kicking field goal, kicking mule. Yes. And he got to be an announcer of the football game. But the cool, cool part for me, cause I showed up, of course, hanging around was his co co-announcer in the movie was Johnny Unitas. Oh, so okay. I got, I got to meet Johnny Unitas, which cool. was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. But he did a few of those. Uh, nothing didn't translate to uh, the big screen. I think my dad was a uh, TV guy. I think he was a small screen actor. Um, so it it he did other uh, you know guest star roles on oh the Doris Day Show things like that. Love American Style, Love Boat, um, those kind of shows of the day. Quincy, you know, Night Gallery. And um, he was also doing a play on the road. This is back in the day. Probably most of your, your listeners do not know this. There was a thing called dinner theater. Dinner theater. You would go, you would have dinner, and you would watch a live show. Um, and it was all over the country. There was a circuit, you know, that actors and actresses could follow. And you could literally be busy 12 months a year uh, if you wanted to do that. Right. So my dad would fill in, you know, weeks or months or something between TV or, or a couple of movie gigs with dinner theater. So he played all over the country and he, uh, after a while he did the, the, um, uh, same play because they, he could recite it forward and backward. And, uh, so he was doing that too, but he bottom line, he wanted to be back on TV. So, uh, four years later, people at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore company who are, you know, on top of the world, Mary show, uh, Phyllis Rhoda, Bob Newhart, oh, yeah. you know, they're huge, huge company. They offer my dad a show about a guy in his forties who goes back to college med school to become a, a doctor. Uh, it kind of sounds like Carol's second, second act, right? Season, yeah. Second, second act. act. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is 1975 and, um, it started out as a one camera show, you know, one camera filmed, uh, show. They did the pilot, not a very good pilot, but NBC liked my dad. And they, of course they liked working with MTM, Mary Tyler Moore company. Right. So they said, well, why don't we do it? Like all of Mary's shows live in front of an audience, you know, with uh, three film cameras. So they switched it and they wound up doing 13 episodes and it became the Bob Crane show. Right. Unfortunately, the people like Jim Burns and I mean, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns and those kind of people who were doing Mary's show and Newhart and stuff were not involved in it. Uh, this show, uh, the writing was not great. The premise was, you know, was all right. And it aired opposite the Waltons. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. The Waltons was huge. Right. Huge show. So this is in the days, this is 1975. This is before, if, if you're, if you have a really bad show nowadays, you can get canceled after one episode. Right. Uh, or some shows have got been canceled before they even aired. <laughs> That's right. Um, they suddenly decide, nah, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, this is the day when you, you know, like you had a commitment for 13 episodes to see how it was going to do. Right. And the Waltons was kicking its butt and they actually played NBC played all 13 episodes. They didn't 
cancel it after, you know, two or three episodes. They played it out, and that was the end of it. And, you know, never came back and uh, never to be rerun anywhere because, uh, you know, it just didn't have enough episodes. episodes Yeah. yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it was not a great show. And and that was it. That was the end. That was his second shot at starring in a TV sitcom. We hope you enjoyed the first of our two-part interview with Robert Crane. Part two will look at his dad's efforts as an actor in the 1970s and a hobby that would ultimately lead him to a tragic end. For much more of Bob Crane, check out the book, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, available through Amazon and wherever books are sold. For additional episodes of TV Retrovision and our superhero podcast, Voices from Krypton, please head over to VoicesFromKrypton.net. And as if we haven't asked enough, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.